Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, PhD student in Russian Lit, and soon to be an expert in Esperanto as my Esperanto-related <laughs> library collection grows. Soon right. I will have amassed every book ever written. <laughs> How much time are you spending reading those books you're collecting? Far too many times for the, for the middle of... Uh, for me being in the middle of taking my qualifying exams. Hell yeah, brother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'm Cameron Lalana, and I've just ordered, not two days ago, a 75-pound serving and a 120-pound serving of uh, protein powder and creatine, respectively. So I think my workout thing is spiraling out of control. During the pandemic, I think the first time Matt and I talked after like a year, I told him I was just getting into CrossFit. And he said, this is the Cameron content I'm here for. Uh, and I feel like I'm eternally regressing back to the same things over and over again. But hey, isn't that what life's all about? Isn't that what Tolstoy would have you believe? Yeah, I feel like Tolstoy is all about telling you, is all about repeating things that you don't want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> he would fit in with the CrossFit crowd. <laughs> <laughs> Not doing CrossFit this time, to be clear. I've, I've, I got out of that. I'm doing normal now this time. Just fit. Uh, just fit. <laughs> but anyhow. <laughs> This is a podcast for me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. Today, we're going to be talking about epilogues. You got them. Everyone's got them. Tolstoy's got them. We got two of them here today. Some of them are better than others. Right. I think. Tolstoy's really stretching the idea of an epilogue where normally it's, okay, here's what happens after the story. And he said, wait, I know you want to know about the characters, but I have some more thoughts about history and that's its own epilogue. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's okay. If, if you don't care about what Tolstoy has to say, you can just read the part about the characters you liked. And, uh, you know, you probably got the gist from the rest of the book. I'll be honest. Right. Yeah. Anyway, but after investing all this time reading War and Peace, you probably want to make sure you're getting the most out of your reading, and especially if you're going to be reading Epilogue Number 2, which is really its own beast. It could be like its own pamphlet. Uh, you should head on over to patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy, where we're posting a reading guide for each episode in this series, including a quick commentary on major quotes and themes, and boy howdy, are you going to need it for Epilogue Part 2. And yes, I'm behind on posting reading guides, but they will all be up very soon. <laughs> As soon as he's finished dying through his comps exam, so I think we can let it slide. Just this once. And hey, speaking of Patreon, we wanted to extend a sincere thank you to our newest patron, Nicholas. Nicholas, thank you for supporting the podcast. If you're not interested in Patreon, but you still want to help us out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. And Matt, for the first time in a while, we're not recording at, you know, 8 a.m. in the morning, so bring anything to the table to drink? Uh... Yes, I am drinking a twisted tea. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, this Very is actually nice. what the 19th century Russian peasant used to drink, so I just feel like I'm kind of honoring them. Sure, yeah. Uh, I'm drinking this twisted tea in kind of a God-honoring way. Uh, You're bringing together tea, very big part of Slavic culture, vodka, you know, another part of Slavic culture, and you're combining them into one product to show your respect. Y- yeah, sure. sure. <laughs> what, what are you drinking? Well, I, I'm anyone who works with um, uh, measurements, I don't know if you work in you know, a science or maybe you're a baker, um, I'm going to need you to stop listening for the next 20 seconds, but I've just made the world's biggest um, gin and tonic unintentionally. Okay. Didn't have, I, did not, I did not have any measuring, clean measuring instruments on me, so I, I knew two ounces of gin, I'll just grab my scale, I looked at it from the top, I poured two ounces, I picked it up and said, that seems like an awful lot of gin, and then it occurred to me that uh, two 
ounces and two fluid ounces are not the same thing. Uh, <laughs> well, they can be, but not necessarily. In this case, they are definitely not. Uh, and of course, I had no way to go but just to then add the you know similar amount of way overdone tonic water. So I have a, a lot. I've got a lot of gin and tonic here. So we're going to see how this episode goes. I'm surprised that you measure. I feel like for me, measuring for me is done. I'm done with STEM completely. <laughs> you don't measure your cocktails? Uh, I like not ones that only have two ingredients. Yeah, but you gotta have like, if I was a, a consistent gin and tonic drinker, maybe I wouldn't need it, but I'm very inconsistent. I don't, I don't drink them very often. So I feel like I need, I know it's okay. a two to one ratio, but okay. typically, but I feel like I can't eyeball that. I can eyeball a pan. I can eyeball a pot. I cannot eyeball a shaker. Did you shake it? <laughs> No, <laughs> no, I, I, no. Sorry, I got to clarify a lot of things I don't do in this episode. I do not, I do not shake my gin and tonics. Okay, we'll not. find again too much about Cameron. <laughs> any, any people who are really into mixology, there, you can, you can let your heart rates level out now. <laughs> well, okay, so let's talk, let's talk, epilogues. Finally, epilogue. Yeah. So, uh, as epilogue one. I believe this. I really, I've got two sections. I've got notes on chapters and just like big quotes I like. I believe this is the part of Epilogue Long, but I did not label it. Seven years had passed. The storm-tossed sea of European history had subsided within its shores and seemed to have become calm. But the mysterious force that moved humanity, mysterious because the laws of their motion are unknown to us, continued to operate. So I'm going to op- open the epilogues with that because two things are happening here. First of all, we're going to cover what carries on with our characters and also a broader discussion of an idea of history that Tolstoy is putting forth to us. And yes, he's been talking about theories of history this whole time, uh, but this time he kind of buttons it up, brings it to a close, if you will, and starts addressing a lot of particulars. Because if we know one thing about Tolstoy, it's that he's incredibly pedantic and is probably familiar with the fact that other people would be just as pedantic as him uh, with his ideas and decided to head that off by countering all the possible arguments he could think of. Yeah, it really makes you think, why did I read like 800 pages of Tolstoy digressions? (laughs) right so we this this part of the book covers basically 1813 to 1820 most of this book has been you know this war uh, that happens um partially in the russian empire in 1812 and, and now we're moving on through the next th- seven years and at this point we've moved on from warfare and it's as he calls it the sea of history is not driven as spasmodically as before and now we turn from a time of you know, warfare of armies to death and destruction to, you know, a time characterized more so by political uh, infighting and and just fighting regularly, diplomatic engagements, laws, treaties, whatever. And he goes on a tangent here, criticizing historians who look back and cast judgment on rulers saying, you know, they should have done this and that. And he says, well, you know, if they knew what to do all the time, then why would we, it would, the possibility of free will doesn't exist. It It would mean all history you know, goes along a certain line, they would have to know what's right and what's wrong, and no one's that impartial. Uh, secondarily, if, if someone knew what was right and what was wrong all the time, then, hey, what's the point of humanity? What's the point of life? Because we would just go around doing the right thing all the time, which might have some advantages, but I don't think he explicitly makes this argument, but the idea that we can do wrong things, can do bad things, can be individuals and fail is inherent to an idea of, you know, humanity. It is essentially notes from underground. I didn't want to explicitly <laughs> draw the line to Dostoevsky, but yeah, that was that's kind of there for me at least. They're different, but there are some similarities for sure. Right. We he then goes into talking more about you know he loves to, to 
criticize historians. This in this point, he he criticized historians for uh, saying basically. Uh, if we accept that great men, great individuals, great people lead forth humanity to the attainment of certain ends, then, you know, history can only be explained with the conceptions of fact, or excuse me, with the conceptions of chance and genius. Genius is when take grabs, is, is when uh, genius, genius is when someone grabs on a chance, as history would have you believe. Um, and so he goes on to talk more about the rise of Napoleon with this conception and he says these things are used because people really don't understand. It's used in place of understanding. Um, he says the words chance and genius do not denote any really existing thing and therefore cannot be defined. They really only denote a certain stage of understanding of phenomena. I do not know why a certain event occurs. I think that I cannot know it, so I do not try to know it, and I talk about chance. I see a force producing effects beyond the scope of ordinary human agencies. I do not understand why this occurs, and I talk of genius." And he uses that basic idea to explain Napoleon, for whom, you know, he says, who is Napoleon? Who is, who is this man who had many failings, had many successes, and oftentimes uh, those are brought about not just by him, but by the people around him, by the belief that he should, by virtue of being great, be doing these things. And so they, therefore, turned their agencies and, and their uh, belief and their power into supporting him. And then when he was no longer in that position... They turned away from him, and he went from being a great man carrying out a war to a criminal carrying out mass murder. And the only difference between those two things is how the people around him, you know, believed him to be, as he or has laid out before. Uh, you know, greatness excuses, as as he argues, greatness for many excuses any possible crime and turns it almost into virtue. You know, uh, as as he also says here, these men who commit crimes, especially their leader, assure themselves that these crimes are admirable. This is glory. It resembles Kaiser and Alexander the Great, and therefore it is good. And he carries on for a while about in Napoleon laws of history, and he eventually comes to talking about bees, which sounds weird, but he, he talks about looking <laughs> for a meaning of history. I like looking at the purpose of a bee in that if you ask a lay person, if you ask, I do not remember what the word is for someone who studies bees, you know, someone who's like a scientist, if you ask... <laughs> Thank you. Uh, if you ask like various people who have got different perspectives on it, you know, a chef, whatever, they're going to give you a bunch of different perspectives. And he says, none of these are necessarily wrong, but, you know, none of them are the purpose of a bee. And he says, and so too, looking at humans, the way humans act, the more the higher human intellect rises in the discovery of these purposes, the more obvious it becomes that the ultimate purpose is beyond our comprehension. So, right, like we, we at this point in our stage of development of intellect of whatever, um, from our individual perspectives, cannot really truly understand history itself. And we'll come back to that idea. <laughs> yeah, you know got... nothing, and you never get to know anything. <laughs> right. Just like the bee buzzing along. So in 1813, this is, uh, you know, so much has happened to the Rostov family that after all this stress, all this pressure, uh, Count Rostov, too, takes ill and dies. Uh, shortly after Natasha marries Pierre. Also, I should have loved that. Natasha marries Pierre, <laughs> like, not too long after the end of part four of book four. Um, so he, he holds on just long enough to organize that, and then he, he dies. And Nikolai comes on quickly after hearing news of his father's death, and as he tries to organize things in, you know, his father's wake, his father was solely responsible for all of their finances, he realizes, wow, he was, the old man did not let on how bad our, our estate is they are in such deep debt that he has to like sell the estate. He's got to take a government job. He's got to do, he sells a lot of stuff. No, not a job. <laughs> yeah, I know. The worst thing you could possibly have, a job. 
uh, a job in Moscow instead of, you know, in a Hussar regiment off in the vaunted, the vaunted plains. And even with all that, he only manages to cover half of their debts. Um, and he's like facing prison. So he basically does nothing but staying home, taking care of the small house he, um, his mother, the countess, and uh, Sonia now live in and otherwise works. And they do their best to basically cover their financial straits, like the their dire straits their finances in are from his mother and from the people around them, especially his friends. But everyone has pretty much figured out, uh, yeah, they're not doing so hot. And uh, Tolstoy notes that Nikolai, uh, first of all, is acting like a major dick to Sonia. And then secondarily, he almost seems to like revel or relish in this gloomy mood that he's perpetually in now, as if it's what allows him to you know maintain this position of of you know hardship, relative hardship. You know, obviously still living in a house, still has food on the table, still has servants, but he could go to jail if he doesn't pay his debts. So could be worse, could be better. In the middle of all this, Sonia, excuse me, Maria comes to Moscow at the beginning of winter and decides to go see him. And he completely rebuffs her. He treats her very coldly. And she takes off thinking, you know, whatever, that's my fault. I, I shouldn't have called them first. I really should have waited. That was kind of improper of me. And, and later on, a few months down the line, Nikolai goes to see her. And they have this really awkward conversation, very much these two people who at one point kind of thought, hey, maybe we are in love, maybe we should get married, are now sitting there literally talking about the weather for hours. And before Nikolai gets up to leave, you know, Madame Bourienne, who's still there somehow, takes off and they have finally have a moment of a heart to heart. It's a very awkward conversation. But in that very awkwardness, Maria sees the person who she had fallen in love with so long ago. And um, they, within, and, and seeing that she... It's noted that what was remote, this idea of a marriage of, of romance becomes not only not remote, not far away, but possible, inevitable, and very near. Uh, and within a few months, they're married. And they, they move to, back to the Bald Hills, to the Balkonsky estate. And this, Nikolai spends the next seven years working on their finances, and he manages to not only repair things, but actually turn everything around and start doing quite well. One of his major pleasures in life, oh, baby, you know it, it's farming. It? Oh, it's farming. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah. Does he have opinions about farming? He do, he does have opinions about farming, and he especially has opinions about how peasants and their relationship to farming should be. Mm, interesting. Uh, I I know you would never see that coming from a character in Tolstoy, one of Tolstoy's books, but does he have opinions particularly related to foreign methods of agricultural production? Right. Yeah. No, he is he does not care about any of those. He cares about five things. He cares about the oxygen in the air, manure, special plows. Uh, and uh, nitrogen in the soil. But most importantly, the things to which all those are subordinated to, the peasant. (laughs) I love how (laughs) everybody reading this was like, oh, great, I'll finally figure out who got together. And Tolstoy was like, agricultural production. Come on, come on, come on. (laughs) I know this whole time we've been having a will they, won't they with uh, Nikolai and Sonia and the Nikolai and Maria and that whole thing. But I know what we're really waiting for is when do we get around to who has the first real engagement with farming? I know Pierre tried, <laughs> but he was bad at it, so it doesn't really count. Yeah, we'll talk about this more later, but it just, I got such a laugh out of it. Right. Yeah, the only thing you need to know about Nikolai is that he's really good at it. He's, he's as a, I want to say manager, because that's kind of what he does. I feel like his role is almost a manager, but he owns them. He, he does own these serfs. Uh, <laughs> these, are, yes. these are people who he has bought with money, uh, but he does his best to understand them. And by by doing so... Uh, really manages to work with them rather than command them from above. And they feel that he kind of understands them and they have a pretty positive relationship overall. He's not an easygoing person. In fact, he can be quite harsh. Uh, but uh, I guess the thing the book notes is that he's never uh, harsh and um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's it, no one. Everyone understands when he's being harsh. He's, his rules are consistent. He's not unfair. Right. He's not unfair. He, you know, I mean, maybe you could say accuse him of his rules of being unfair, but his rules are what the rules are. He does not stray from them uh, just because he likes someone. Rules are the rules. Everyone understands what they are. And the peasants seem to, uh, as, as Tolstoy have you believe, appreciate that. Appreciate that they, they know basically what their boundaries are. And they have someone who understands them elsewise. Um, also, Nikolai gives up beating his peasants. You may recognize that is, that is his main method of solving problems in the past. Uh, Maria is not a big fan of it, and he, uh, like like a recovering alcoholic, occasionally beats them. Comes to his wife and says, "Oh, I need to, I need to let you know I beat another peasant, but I'm not I'm not going to fall off the wagon again." And eventually, he stops. Uh, Sonia is there, and she's compared to a cat again, but now in like the saddest possible way. And the exact line is, "Like a cat, she had attached herself not to the people but to the home." It's different. She's just in the background now. So, carrying on from there, we are now in 1820, and we start to have uh, go from a general overview down into a specific period of time uh, between mostly Maria Nikolai, Maria Nikolai, as well as Natasha and Pierre. At this point, they all, all of them, in this December of 1820, they all have a number of children. Pierre is returning from a seven-week trip in, in Petersburg. And I'm not going to go too much into the details of this, because really what happens here is just like a quiet night. Pierre returns. The children, many of them are happy. Andre's son is there. Andre really looks up to Pierre. Everyone really respects Pierre. He's become, I know we kind of talked about this last time, but he's really become like uh, a well-liked, well-loved, genuinely respected person. He also really is only doing this because Natasha has made him a better person. And this Tolstoy has a lot to say about the place of the family and how that improves people. Um, yeah, and there's some interesting points in there and also some pretty regressive points in there. And we'll start, we'll talk about that. Sorry. Yeah. You had something to say. Th- this whole epilogue part one summarized by everyone's now in a family unit. Everyone has kids. Everyone's better for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Except Sonia. Life Except sucks. Sonia. <laughs> right. Yeah. So <laughs> that's basically it. The things I really want to point out here are Natasha. Uh, Tolstoy really goes on how she has just given up. In his terms, at least in the way they did the the translation terms it, any form of kind of seductiveness. She's like just she's given up dancing, she's given up singing, she's the fire of her life of her light is out. But Tolstoy says he's better for it because she just has a family now. And then he writes this. There were then is now conversations and discussions about women's rights, the relation of relations of husband and wife and their freedom and rights, though these themes were not yet termed questions as they are now, but these topics were not merely uninteresting to Natasha. She positively did not understand them. So um, really coming through some of Tolstoy's beliefs on uh, (laughs) 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 women. I I actually feel like he could have made a point that is like, hmm, interesting. You could consider it on some level. But I think for him, a lot of what I read is just... uh, there is definitely some underlying resentment, to say the least. Well, yeah, because as he goes on for an entire chapter, uh, he just says, well, Natasha, all she was acting up because she didn't have a family and she wasn't a mother yet. And her mother knew that, but no one else did. But now she had a family. She never went outside. She just tended to her family. And now she was just like, that was her whole life. But also, it was what she needed. <laughs> I can promise you Tolstoy's wife did not think that. <laughs> we can, no i don't need any we don't need any evidence for this but we can guarantee you this that this was this was a tolstoy only thought no i know my evidence is for a long time after they tried to get married he she kept trying to go on a trip to see like friends and family but tolstoy perpetually kept her pregnant so that she could not leave the estate yeah i don't know if that's the man that you trust to answer the uh quote-unquote woman question <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, who could have expected this attitude from the man who'd go on to write the Kreutzer Sonata? Who could, really? <laughs> I do think there is a point, a larger point being made in in here, bundled deeply within, that you could make an argument for, or at least consider. We shall discuss. Right, we'll come back to that. The only other thing I want to notice, note here, actually two things. One, the old countess is carrying on, and she's pretty much just there to eat, be angry, and sleep. But everyone recognizes, hey, that's how life goes. And they said, hey, so we're going to be nice to her anyway. How many years do I have until I get to that part of my life? <laughs> right. Uh, so from there, we uh, they all have a conversation, the whole group. Eventually, most of the women leave to go tend to the children. And Pierre, Nicolai, and Denisov, Denisov is also there, talk in Pierre's study. And essentially what happens is, as you may or may not know, War and Peace was originally supposed to be about the Decemberist revolt that comes, um, I think, in the, was it the 40s? 1825. 18, way off. 1825. So a couple years onward from now. But timeline, not great. Anyway, so it was originally <laughs> supposed to be about the Decemberist revolt. Uh, but as Tolstoy did more and more research, it turned into a novel about you know, War and Peace. I also passed through some of the rewrites. So what is happening here is, is a conversation where Pierre advocates for you know everything in the capital is going wrong. And he goes back to his old ways of saying, we need a secret society. But it doesn't have to be secret. Just people of weak terms, true conservatives who must protect the people and the government from, you know, a coming collapse, essentially. Everything is going to ruin, so we need to find uh, what he terms a union of good people to, you know, counteract the union of vicious people. And and Nikolai takes pretty big offense at this, at the idea that the government is not acting as it should and says we should follow it no matter what. And, you know, if the Arakcheyev and the people that you are, you know, saying we need to protect society from were to ask me to lead a squadron against you, I would. And then they go into a kind of awkward silence for a little while, and then they separate their go their own ways, and both Pierre and Natasha and Maria and Nikolai have their own marital conversations, where it's noted how much after so many years together they they kind of understand each other at a really, you know, at a really basic level, down to not even really need to finishing conversations because they already know what's what their point both points both of them are going to make. So that ends part one. In epilogue two, I'm I'm not going to I don't want to I don't want to go over this as an overview because it's basically just it's a it's a it's an argumentation, and I want to take it as as its own thing without covering beginning to end because I don't think you need to go over every individual argument. Let's just go. We can, I think we can just kind of cover the the outcomes and uh, history bad, <laughs> right? History history bad, but it could be good. Who's to say? Is the basic idea. We don't need to go through all the argumentation. If you're really interested, War and Peace is online for free. Frankly, epilogue number two could be read as its own piece. You did not need a thousand pages of setup to understand this. And it's mostly just him making a pretty basic argument and then spending the entire epilogue heading off possible counter arguments. So, all right. In terms of the story, there's a couple things to cover. Anywhere you want to start. So there's a few different theories on the uh, order in which you should view the Star Wars films. And I think <laughs> okay. the one I was thinking about uh the the machete order maybe okay elaborate i i I can't remember there there was there was several different uh, schools of thought on which way you should view uh the star wars films and how that changes kind of the the meaning of the story and how you can best preserve the sort of main storyline as you watch them through for tolstoy i almost feel like you could read the second epilogue before reading the actual novel and maybe it would be like a good primer for what you're about to get into. I could, yeah, I'd believe that. <laughs> just a random thought I had while reading it. I was like, okay, <laughs> it's going to have been just a separate thing or I don't know. Sure. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it is, 
it is just a piece of argumentation. I think it's interesting. I don't hold to all of it. I think it's uh, an interesting view. Um, I don't know if you want to, before we get into the rest of the story, I don't know if you want to like cover what, what the argument is. We've been talking around it a lot. Um, we can. I just wanted to say about it, how it kind of continues on the trend for Tolstoy throughout the entire novel, which is that the Russian novel doesn't look like the novel in the rest of the world at this point, for the most part. Right. It's a lot longer. It makes a lot less sense. It's a lot less cohesive. And the second epilogue is just kind of a continuation, I think, on on that. I don't I don't know this definitively, but in my experience, most books have one epilogue. <laughs> right. Uh, maybe it has some chapters, but to just do like a second epilogue to me seems sort of like a, not exactly a genre transgression, um, but it's definitely out of the ordinary, I would think. And sure. the whole novel, like this whole thing that Tolstoy does when like he himself comes out from behind the narrator to do his like historical essays that is a transgression of genre um and that is interesting and distinctive I think to the Russian novel and that is what makes War and Peace so fascinating to me mm-hmm. um and the fact that he chooses to end on that is also really interesting because it puts the novel in almost like a like the it puts the plot in almost like a subordinate position to his theoretical arguments because you don't end on wow that was a a convincing conclusive story you end on argument sure yeah yeah so as long as we're talking about let's cover it in basic so i'm let me start from the top down which is his argument essentially here is that how, how do we talk about history and it goes through this whole thing saying historians this is the way historians carry on the study of history and we've been talking about that a lot you know talking about great power great powers great individuals whatever and the great responsibility that comes with great power you're right <laughs> <laughs> and he he does go into a bit more nuance here talking acknowledging that not all historians have the same aim right like a national historian does not have the same aim or method as a cultural historian who does not have the same aim or methods of, as like a world historian oftentimes they're they're clashing uh, but he says he goes through there there are various ways of trying to address these the essential problems and which he termed the essential problem to be um what like basically what is the study of power because to him right like no matter how how do people how do the people's move how do people respond to things okay so we do have someone out front that is true that is a historical fact you tend to have a form of governance to traditionally a hegemon of one sort or another either an individual or a small group um and then so how do we why do the people follow them either it can be the case that people uh by some divine authority like traditional historians would have you believe you know prior to modern ones that, that like the authority of god or whatever that people just directly give that to the to the hegemon or it could be an indirect form of people just like kind of trust them for reasons they know, or it could be people trust and follow for reasons they don't know. And he goes through and says why each of these are basically trying to address the problem of power. How does power happen? What power moves people, moves individuals into carrying out what historians would traditionally call like this, you know, a, a phenomenon of history. And uh, he says basically uh, trying to understand power, it's something that we have uh, just up to this point accepted as a feature and has gone unremarked upon uh, but it's the essential question that we need to solve before we can really move forward with a study of history which is not against just he's against how it's done and he basically argues that we need to we need to figure out what this power is is his essential question and he says some people will might term this free will for individuals 
but he says, you know, that this problem of free will is, ex- is expressed at every step of history. And then he starts talking about Copernicus and uh, ideas of gravity, for example. And, uh, and he says it was not an easy realization for people at whole, the whole to come to how the sciences now understand their solar system. So, you know, in, in this first case of understanding the solar system, it was necessary to renounce the consciousness of an unreal immobility in space, gravity, and to recognize emotion we did not feel. In the present case, being history, it is similarly necessary to renounce a freedom that does not exist, free will, and to recognize a dependence of which we are not conscious. So what he's essentially putting forth is every individual person, despite the fact that we might think we're driven by our own free will, is actually being driven by an unknown force. You know, their relationship to the people around them, to their leaders, to their society, to their laws, whatever it may be. He says, I don't know what that is, but there are forces which relate us to the things, to the to the society around us, which we don't have a name for yet, although we might call power. Um, and we need to solve that problem before we can really understand how history happens. Which is a good argument. It's fine. I think it's interesting. I mean, I think, right, I mean, it certainly that has that as a question that has been addressed many times by philosophers of politics and historians since then, but of the era and as a general question and also as a point of, I think he makes a really interesting thing, a really, a really interesting piece of argumentation here saying, in the past, you know, the historian in a, this believe that there's a direct participation of the deity, whatever that might be, in human affairs. And he says modern theory, history in theory rejects that idea, but in practice just engages in the same thing, switching from, okay, well, that's the will of God to, well, that was the will of whatever, the genius, the scientist, the leader. Uh, and I think it is an interesting idea to, to put forth how we can, you, one can reject the language of an idea while still inherently, uh, but like the, that idea still being completely prevalent and uh, throughout a society. Yeah, there's also something to the linearity, I think, of history that Tolstoy really takes issue with. I don't know for him if things really move forward or backwards. I think at best what he advocates for is a sort of incremental type of progress. Mm. I don't know if he would call it progress, though, because of its sort of political connotations. I think that it more has to do with just like sort of Nikolai's estate as the model, the sort of consensus-based, uh, you know, progress, if you will, uh, or consensus-based change, maybe. Um, and so to study, right, like history as a series of historical events that necessarily denote some sort of progression that doesn't really, doesn't really work. In fact, he actually, I think, would say explicitly calls out this idea in that he says, you know, historians kind of tend to assume that there's a goal which humanity is moving toward, uh, and it's known to historians, and he says, it is assumed that the goal toward humanity is being led, uh, that the goal which humanity is being led toward is known to historians. Uh, to one of them, this goal is the greatness of the Roman, the Spanish, or the French realm. To another, it is liberty, equality, and a certain kind of civilization in a small corner of the world called Europe. And he continually harps on this idea that, you know, in this small corner and just this one place and just this northern part, you know, that has the right, you know, idea that has the right uh, form of liberty, equality, that has the right civilization, which therefore people are trying to move forward. And he doesn't, I would say he doesn't directly say that's wrong, but he, it, he always uses it in a sort of tone of, of uh, ridicule. Yeah, I think that this is the sort of point that you were just making, which is that it's not necessarily that the ideas as such are wrong and that he disagrees with them, but he definitely does disagree with the sort of sense that it is inevitable. 
and that we absolutely must right just make progress for the sake of it and this is definitely a common sentiment at the time he's writing it's been brewing since since this war basically and it obviously continues and intensifies afterwards and as a side point i also want to say he does call it my boy edward gibbon who is a uh, <laughs> uh one of his own times foremost biographers of the roman empire uh which is fair but i gotta say <laughs> edward gibbon wrote some hard lines his uh his uh final epilogue or epigraph epitaph for the roman empire is i believe there never before has been such a civilization and i hope for the happiness of mankind that there never is one again which two things one incredibly hard epitaph for the roman empire uh two shows that Robert gibbon had definitely no knowledge of chinese history because chinese history i think puts roman history on scale of epic proportion to shame on almost every front mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And now this is the Edward Given podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, just talk to anyone who's who's uh, a, I had too many historian friends in college. Anyone who's got a lot to say about Roman history, I don't know. They weren't very compelling. Everyone had a lot to say about Chinese history. They had stories to tell. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow. Anyhomst. So let's talk about some characters. I want to talk about Nikolai because I think he's the most important. Let's talk about Nikolai. Let's talk about our friend Nikolai uh, Levin Constantine yes. Rostov. Yes. <laughs> I think in some ways he's the most compelling argument for Tolstoy's theory on a character level. Now, I said just a minute ago, right, that the plot is in a lot of ways subordinate to Tolstoy's argumentation. And I think that a lot of the characters are just kind of playing out what Tolstoy is trying to say. I think he's less convincing in the epilogue than he is in the rest of the novel. However, I do think Nikolai is the sort of uh, poster boy, if you will, even though everybody eventually conforms to sort of Tolstoy's way of life. But hmm. uh, Nikolai, if you remember, he was not good at managing his father's estate when he came back from the military, when he knew that they were in severe, severe debt. And he tried to straighten it out, but it went pretty much just as terribly as his father did uh really no no success you know what did he do beat the housekeeper and uh you know basically nothing ended up coming of it now i think he has learned right how to manage his affairs which i don't know if this is sort of like the microcosm of the state for tolstoy or exactly how it works out but the household life is the most important thing that you can learn how to manage for tolstoy and Nikolai is able to do this. And this is a sign, I think, of his personal advancement that's shown in the epilogue because he goes from about halfway through the book being terrible at doing all this stuff, uh, no better than his father, to actually, right, like paying back the debts and, you know, rebuilding his childhood estate and kind of getting his family together, right, and not just falling into this sort of, like, as you see in Anna Karenina, like the complete disintegration of the family through debt, like Steva. The family still holds some sort of like, you know, almost moral center for him that he, he is able to, I don't know, it, it advance through or he's able to kind of progress himself through. And I think that that is shown mostly through the agriculture. I really hate to say it. <laughs> I hate to say it. Tolstoy uses agriculture as a really big marker of sort of interpersonal understanding honestly mm. and he uses it in kind of this like slavophile 
sort of way, which is like very interesting to me. This sort of, oh, you know, the Russian peasant is extremely, there's some extremely unique cultural factors that make them not able to understand or be able to use like Western technology, which is <laughs> kind of ridiculous. But, you know, what he's saying is, right, you can't just transplant like some foreign system onto your own you know, cultural system and expect it to work. And honestly, I think that that is a, a lesson that uh, many people have learned <laughs> time and time again in the sort of international sphere. Yeah, I will say, just sorry, just breaking the middle. Mm -hmm. It is, this is a point in War and Peace which is made, improved immensely by his reiteration and expansion of it in Anna Karenina. And yes. I'm going into more so, like, it's not that there's an inherent feature, but it's more so about, you know, not giving people technologies that they don't understand doesn't jive with, like, their culture, you know, rather than, like, introducing things slowly in a way that they understand the importance of it. It's it's an argument, I, yeah, I think makes more sense in, in, in light of Anna Karenina <laughs> expanding on it in a much more, in a much better way. Yeah, there's this sort of expansion in a lot longer, those scenes, right, that people don't don't like about that are i think important to the point i mean frankly don't read <laughs> yeah quite frankly people just don't tend to read those parts but they are really important uh for this exact reason which i think this is how how tolstoy marks like almost interpersonal understanding in the epilogue the the fact that nikolai is able to right he works on this almost consensus-based series of uh change on his estate and that's how he's able to move it forward he's not imposing things that other people don't want or aren't able to work with he's doing something that is you know right like within their means within their cultural system of understanding and the way that nobody feels he's unjust or unfair and that is a big marker of personal progression for him mm -hmm. and you kind of just have to look past the surf beating to get there <laughs> right <laughs> which you know i'm just telling you how i think you might be able to expand tolstoy's theory but yeah there are some <laughs> undoubtedly uh difficult parts right yeah and i mean i think that's one of the one of the upsides in reading war and peace and i know we t uh, we've formally talked about how in a lot of ways anna Karenina should be read as two different novels and a lot of meaning should be found in the interaction between those two separate novels i think you could almost expand that to uh, completely unintentionally his part a dialogue between those two novels of Anna Karenina and also the, you know, the, the novel of War and Peace, uh, not at the very least, because I think you can really see an evolution of ideas of his thinking and what's at the forefront of his mind over the course of the book um, and the way in which that argumentation, some of it becomes more developed, like your, to your point about the place of agriculture and the way that that mm -hmm. gets developed in Anna Karenina and also the lines of argumentation, which more or less just get dropped yeah, or might get rephrased in a much more subtle way. Mm -hmm. like the the way that the sort of his critique of the morality of people like um helena evolves from pretty in your face in this book to much more subtle in a sense in steve's character sure i don't think steve is subtle but yeah it, it compared to him uh, like writing an entire paragraph about why they're bad and just letting steve's own actions oh, I see themselves yeah. yeah yeah i yeah that's what i think is interesting i think he Right, he doesn't say Steve is bad, I don't think, in Anna Karenina, but he clearly is, but he writes him, like, in a funny way, where even people that read it are like, haha, isn't Steve so funny? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> no. Not really. You wouldn't find it funny if you're married to him. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, for Helena, who is basically the same character traits, and also her brother, whose name I escapes me at the moment, basically the same thing, but Tolstoy does let you know very directly as a reader 
exactly why they're bad and and he kind of lets that stand later on so sure i think yeah reading in, in evolution of each of these ideas or the way he portrays them is is interesting so should we talk about the family finally let's talk about the family because i have my own theory on the family that is um i'm not really sure based on anything it's, it's okay. based right. on uh, a couple twisted t's and <laughs> a second attempt at reading uh, war and peace sure sure well that's the best where the best thoughts come from yeah yeah, yeah. so what i'm trying to really work out is like I'm not trying to poke holes in Tolstoy's line of thinking because I think it's easier to do that than to try to expand it like either into the modern day or to really like flesh out what he was thinking because like obviously you could just say I don't know Tolstoy is a regressive woman hater and you know that he's not worth reading because of that but I don't think that really does it you know justice I don't think anyone's saying that I'm just you know or anyone saying it seriously, but mm. there are parts that are difficult to reconcile with Natasha's conclusion. However, I think the sort of interaction between history and right this prosaic line of his novel is to sort of say, like, you're not going to be the great man of history because there is really no such thing, and anybody who who thinks they are are kind of idiots and they're really just fooling themselves and that leads to some sort of like inauthentic life Mm -hmm. and so this is not a way that you should strive to live what you should strive to do right is what he's saying is to immerse yourself in the sort of prosaic stuff the the minutiae of life and that's kind of what Nikolai does pretty much with running his estate right he's not trying to go out there uh, and be you know, the next military general for Russia. He's just trying to, you know, sit at home and work as a state. And it's not easy. He, you know, fights with everybody. And, is, you know, Tolstoy isn't saying this is just some perfect life that you're going to live. But that's the kind of model that he's setting out is to find, right, that sort of happiness in the kind of, just the kind of normalness uh, of life to appreciate that aspect of it. And I think that's why the novel is so long right? it's to like focus on those parts which you could leave out of the novel because a lot of them are just right they're whatever why like why pay attention to them but i think that's what tolstoy is kind of drawing your eye to and so for natasha i think the thing with the family is the family keeps you out of society life which he doesn't like and allows you to focus on just right whatever the everyday stuff I think it's interesting. Let me know what you think of this idea. But to your point about how, like, to claim yourself to be a leader is a you know an unbelievably arrogant thing. And, you know, up to this point, his his I think his clowning on Rostopchin and, and Napoleon and all the others is pretty apparent that what he thinks of people who believe they have control over people. Mm-hmm. I wonder, as a counterpoint to that, Pierre, if you have if you believe what he says, he's a pretty important person. And he draws people together, not as I'm a leader of these men, but rather you know simply. As Pierre says, I believe we need simple ideas. The greatest outcomes have these simple ideas. So if there is a group of people, a group of vicious people who have a, you know sort of a union, we should therefore create a union of people who are not vicious, who are good people. Um, and people seem to draw to that idea very simply, not as a, I'm a leader, but simply I am one, you know, I'm, I'm drawing people together into their own sort of agreement. And Natasha thinks, you know, this is my husband. He's, he's Pierre. Could he really be this sort of 
you know, this so important in this Petersburg life. And I think you could read that cynically. Uh, that, that is a valid interpretation. But I'm almost wondering to your point about, um, you know, I don't Tolstoy doesn't, he doesn't take certainly doesn't take issue with the idea that leadership is possible. I think the the example of Nikolai shows that he does to some degree believe that individuals can uh, be leaders and improve those under their, you know, under their um, purview, but is in this way putting forth an alternative form of understanding that form of leadership and, and two different forms in the case of Nikolai, someone who's very clear in what his outcomes are, and how he's going to achieve that and does that in a specific way, or Nikolai who does, who, or excuse me, or Pierre who does that by not high big aims or mysticism or whatever, but by putting forth simple ideas that are morally consistent with what he believes. Yeah, I guess it's right. It's not that you can't be a leader or anything like that. It's just that you can't strive to do it. Hmm. You know, it has to almost be, it almost has to appear in front of you by circumstance in a lot of ways, which I think is like antithetical to this sort of right revolutionary system that's cropping up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's like, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting because I do think it does fit in line with, again, some like Slavophile thinking in terms of like not just Slavophiles, but how Russians at this time in general would view like positions of power like the czar, which is not like this is our leader that's like pushing us forward. And uh, it's it's different. It's almost like a burden. Like leadership is almost a burden because you have that responsibility and the responsibility for others is a burden and it should be looked upon as such. Mm. It should not be like this glorified position. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think he's playing with that a little bit as well. And I think that that's something that's kind of weird for us in the West, at least, to have a very big culture of, like, leader glorification. Sure, yeah. The idea of viewing a leader as someone who's burdened is not something I would characterize as, like, an American thing, for instance. We compete, like, so hard. We spend so much money to be leaders, right? We don't push forth ideas that are organic within our communities, Um I mean, some people do, but you can just be outspent in the American fashion, baby. <laughs> uh, the good old American way. There's no problem that you can't uh, spend your way spend your way out of uh, uh, if you've got the right connections. Have I talked enough? I think I don't know. I'm I'm looking through my notes. I feel like we've covered the big points. Um, I just feel like I've gotten like I feel like I, I have a feel for Tolstoy's right, <laughs> right, like way of thinking like i can like reason my way through situations with it yeah i like i'm not saying you should adhere to it neither would tolstoy i don't think because i don't think it's supposed to be the sort of like theory as such it's not supposed to be an all-encompassing system right it kind of sort of is but it's not supposed to be well he kind of it's interesting he comes up to just like the barrier if you step a couple steps further he could create a theory but so much of what Tolstoy is all about is kind of avoiding that. And so you seem come up to the edge of so many ideas, you know, in what is to be done on the edge of like, not even Marx, it's just like vaguely socialist ideas, which of course, you know, many others take his ideas and then do take that extra step or, you know, whatever else, like many different features we talked about through War and Peace, through Anna Karenina, through the other stuff covered of his, so many other belief systems which crop up not too long after he's writing are people who've taken that next step. But he, and he comes up to these things because he's a pretty critical person. And he's a he's someone who does take uh, 
an eye towards the society and is willing to look at that and say, this is wrong, and maybe we should think about other ways of doing this. But he's never really a theoretician. He's a person who portrays these things and says, let's, let's create a new form of thinking or, or, or whatever it may be without ever really, like, to your point, he never creates a totalizing system of this is how we should therefore then understand the world. He always kind of stops at, I think we should be paying attention to these things. I think this may be a better way. I'm not going to, you know, take that final step for you, intentional or not. Maybe it's just because he <laughs> didn't want to create that system himself or didn't uh, feel like he had a right to, to some of our conversations. But I think it's interesting how often he comes very, very close to that. Yeah, it, well, it's, right. It's like kind of hard to write a novel without an encompassing worldview, which is the point of a novel. And so that's why it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Because he has a, a view which explains a lot of things, but the view is everything is individual or supposed to be understood individually, separately. Right. Which is like, right, it's, it's kind of like an anti-theory, but I don't know. It doesn't matter. You don't have to categorize it. I think that's the point. <laughs> right, right. Just live, laugh, love, Tolstoy. Live, laugh, love, Levin. Um, <laughs> I think we've covered the basics of what we want to talk about in this episode, but I do have to ask, we've been working on War and Peace for... You know, today is May the 22nd. We've been working on this novel for over uh, nearly six months now, reading, reflecting, thinking. At this point, finishing up, is there anything, any broad thoughts, anything you just want to say at this point? (laughs) Any reflections or just, well, I'm glad we're done. (laughs) Yep, sure glad to be done. No, my broad thought is, is for our listeners, which is just, I hope that the series was interesting I hope that you learned something that you didn't know. I hope that you understand now how to approach Tolstoy a little bit better so that when you do your second read or third read or fourth read of War and Peace, you continue to find things that you didn't find your first time because I know I did. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. It's good. What, what about you? What do you, t- what do you take away from this uh, big thicky? Uh, I got to say, I know... Talking about his theories of history can be a bit repetitive and can be a bit outdated. Certainly, there are many people who have addressed this, the same ideas since then, maybe even better than Tolstoy did. But I, I, I think it's compelling. I think for someone writing in his time, writing pretty originally uh, and critiquing his not only his own society but many others around them on how they view history, on like engaging in a form of history which he advocates for stuff that I, yeah, you know, as when I was a, studying journalism stuff, I was really interested in the sort of journalism that leads to like Howard Zinn. Or Studs Terkel, or you know Svetlana Alexeyevich, uh, to do their very people-oriented versions of history. Frankly, even Vasily Grossman uh, to do their very mm-hmm. people-oriented versions of history. That's something that I find really, really cool, very interesting. And also, it's some of the things that I kind of think about with with older writers is especially talking about Russian literature in you know in a modern context is talking about these writers in relation to empire. Um, and I think. You could say a lot about history, about Tolstoy and his relationship to empire, but I've always, I've, I find it very compelling. His continued advocation against, you know, whatever you want to say about his morality, and certainly there's a lot to critique about it. I think it's pretty admirable for his his era, his time to say that, to, to excuse anything in the name of greatness. Uh, he doesn't use the word colonialism, but to excuse murder in Africa and in Malta and in, in Russia as just a feature of greatness as you know, as nothing but meanness and a, a you know why we need to have more consistent form of morality. Whether or not you want to buy into the form of consistent morality, that, that which is a fair critique, I think it is a compelling. Uh, it's a compelling piece for someone who is uh, a flawed person, but obviously had some pretty compelling moral arguments to make from his time and his period. 
that's why we still read him. Yeah. He never goes away. <laughs> he maintains. Not everything ages he well, does. but overall he maintains. <laughs> he sure does. <laughs> the dude the dude abides in this case. Absolutely. Well, Cameron, I gotta ask before we totally wrap on up from this series, on a scale from one to Yeltsin, how mm. drunk are thou? I am after the world's largest gin and tonic. I think I'm a good five. How about you? Okay. I was getting up there, and then I only brought one twisted tea to this podcast. <laughs> sure. And I taught a, talked a lot about the novel, mm-hmm. and now I am not so high up there. That is fair. That's how it goes. That how it that is that is how it goes. Well, normally I'd ask you, and I know we've foregone this question the last couple of episodes. I'd ask you, what are we reading next episode? But uh, hey, uh, we're actually taking a break in June, and we will not be. Well, there will be next episodes, but instead, if I if I may, Matt, instead of directing to you what we'll be covering in our next episode, let me tell you, uh, look forward to a sort of a wrap up episode, which will be coming out uh, just a couple days after this podcast comes out talking about what we'll be covering, what will be happening in June. We're not going away, uh, although we will not necessarily be releasing new content, as well as a, a bigger announcement for the podcast going forward. Yeah, this is our normal June break. We do a summer break every year because we are very tired from doing the podcast. <laughs> right. Um, it is very fun and rewarding. However, I feel like just in order to keep up our schedule and everything, we need prep time uh, to sort of pat ourselves a little bit we ran out of our cushion this uh, <laughs> right. spring and it didn't feel good it's been it's been five months of of great thought great great reading five months of really running down to the wire we can be honest <laughs> yeah. so yeah we need a little time to get ahead do some more planning and also matt has to finish his comps <laughs> so eventually eventually <laughs> by, by the time we come back in in person so to speak we'll be done with that but yeah, look out, keep an eye out for that. It's going to be coming out in just a couple days. And before we let you go, we wanted to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons, Nicholas, Brenda, Nel Nel Cool J, Christina, Marin, JG, Banana Karenina, Margarita, Yulia, Amanda, John, Natalie, Ben, James, Elizabeth, Shannon, Blake, Amanda, Maya, Packrob, Zachary, Austin, Isaac, Brett, Caitlin, Eli, Stephanie, Alex, Yitza, Mysterious Donor Dude, Elise, Allison, Brandon, Arini, Lou, Jesse, Paige, Daniel, Darren, Daniel once again, Janice, Anne, Madeline, and Jeff. Podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well, as Matt will tell you many times over. So if you're interested in joining with our Patreon, with our current patrons, and to stop us from doing five months on a single book once again, uh, also to keep the show running, I guess, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsy Tolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast, on Twitter at Tipsy Tolstoy, or you can join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Bye.